the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. This is Wednesday, May 18th. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be pondering the question of just how rich are the Irish Later in the show, I'll be joined in studio by economist John Fitzgerald and the Irish Times economics editor Arthur Beasley to discuss the problems that come with creating new government departments. And they'll also look at the European Commission's latest recommendations on the Irish economy. But first, don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and it's also available from our website, irishtimes.com. But we're going to start with this just how rich are the Irish survey, if you like. And joining me in studio is uh, Irish Times reporter Fiona Redden. Fiona, you're very welcome. Um, I noticed from the article that you wrote very fine piece on uh, in Tuesday's newspaper that the central bank calculates that each Irish household has a net worth of more than 135,000 euro and Credit Suisse uh, calculates that the average is 170,000 euro. Now I, I suspect if we were to take a poll of people on the street and um, they would argue that their net worth is nothing uh, approaching those figures. So h- how have the central bank and Credit Suisse come up with these numbers? If you want to work out your um, household wealth you just look at your total assets minus your debt. So if we'll talk on this later, but um, the biggest asset most people have in Ireland still is their house. And this is what gives that figure. It's so high. Right. OK. And do incomes come into it? They do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's typically it's typically more, sorry, your assets. So it's your house, your pension, your deposit accounts, your savings, mm, right. any investment funds you may have. OK. Now, a- again, people might be surprised that these figures are, are so high. And we'll talk about comparisons with other countries in a few moments. But we've just gone through the biggest bust in the history of the state mm-hmm. and obviously a lot of people are drowning in mortgage debt and, and other uh, you know personal debt etc so how come the average is so high yeah well that's a, a good point isn't it because I, I think if you ask the average person they'll say I'm mm. not that rich but of course it's it's bolstered a bit by these high net worth individuals so the likes of the very wealthy these figures also go into this so right the, okay which pushes up so interesting when you ask that maybe a better figure to look at is the median and that's at about 56,000 per head in Ireland. Right. And uh, by whose? By the, by the central bank. By the central bank. OK. What's the difference between the central bank's number and Credit Suisse? Credit Suisse is obviously Credit higher. Credit Suisse is per adult. Central bank is per person. So per it includes person, children. So children as so well. So that's okay. why Credit Suisse is that bit higher. Now, how would this compare with, let's say, pre-bust uh, 2007, eight when we were flying high? Back then, we'd have had wealth central bank figures of about 152,000. Okay, so it's down. So it's down. We're we're down about eleven percent, but I mean, it would have slumped to below a hundred thousand. So I guess you could say the recovery is partly stock markets, etc., but possibly Mm. more so because of recovery in house prices. You might not know the answer to this, but uh, if somebody owns a house, even if they're in mortgage debt, is that Mm -hmm. considered as an asset? No, it isn't. That the part that's in equity is considered as an asset. Right. Okay. and how do we compare against other countries? Let's take uh, the rest of the EU, for example. Yeah, it was surprisingly well, actually. I mean, if you look at Germany, I think they're they're lower than the 135,000. In Ireland, at about 155. Sorry, that's if we look at um, Credit Suisse figures, so 170 to 155, mm. which might surprise some people. So let's just go through those figures again. For Ireland, uh, according to Credit Suisse, the figure is 170,500, let's say. Yeah. In the case of Germany, we're talking about uh, just under 156,000 euro. Yeah. Uh, in the case of the US, we're talking about 309,000. And let's take the UK, our, our nearest neighbour, 280,000 euro. So we're, we're better off, according to Credit Suisse, we're better off uh, mm-hmm. on average uh, compared to Germans. 
uh, but certainly worse off compared to the UK and the and US. The US. And yeah. I suppose no great surprise in, in that the US is the richest country in the world. Exactly. The UK With wouldn't the be far behind. Of high net worth people. And the German figure is probably explained by the low capital values attaching to housing in Germany. Yeah, and well, the fact it's, it's, a lot of them rent. Yeah, Kieran, I'd say it's to do with low ownership. I mean, if you look at property ownership figures in Ireland, now these are, I have to say, 2013. Mm. They're the latest figures, property ownership. It's at about 70%. Yes. Germany's down at 44%. Right, okay. So there's a big difference there. Right. Uh, did either of them do an analysis of our legacy debt? Yeah, we're the third most indebted still in Europe. And who's so worse off than us? Denmark and the Netherlands. Right. Yeah. But we're better Everyone off. Everyone else is better off. Right. We, which, but, but I mean, in the overall context, we're still wealthier mm. because those debts are subtracted from our assets. Yeah, of course, this is a bit of fun. But it's uh, yeah, it's and it's a legacy debt, as you say, because mm. it's um, it goes back. I mean, if you look at bank figures now, banks are actually have more money on deposit than they're lending at the moment. Yeah. So sure. the appetite for lending has plummeted, but we're still carrying this legacy debt. It's about thirty-two thousand actually per head. Tell me about these one percenters. Well, I mean, I guess they're obviously in the news a lot at the moment. With a very particular one percenter in the US, of course, Donald Trump doing particularly well there. But we have our own These are 1%. people who are on sort of super normal incomes. Yeah, exactly. They have, they're in the top one percent of either wing income or wealth. Right. And um, if you want to know if you're an Irish one percenter, you have to have annual income of about 200,000. Do we know how many of those we have? About 35,000. 35,000, right. Yeah. OK. It doesn't seem like an awful lot when you consider that the average is 170,000 according to Credit Suisse. That's, yeah, but sorry, that's income, 200,000 right. annual income. Right. It's not wealth. So we're, okay, so it's not net worth. Yeah. As it were, the net worth presumably would be, would be a lot higher. And again, you might not know the answer to this question, but uh, the, the people who are offshore for tax purposes, are, are they included in this uh, survey? No, and I mean, it would only be Irish registered wealth, so. Right, okay. How many people are polled um, to come up with these numbers? For the example, entire by Credit population. It's, it, it's, it's the entire population, household assets right but when you uh, talk the about the credit suisse actually as, as far as i understand it, they do take into more account possibly people like you mentioned who might have assets offshore right okay which and could uh, again buoy up the overall wealth figures sure. what's the next biggest asset after property um pension i would imagine they don't i don't think they break that down they give financial assets and that's another point is that we actually have more financial assets now. So I know we mentioned property mm. has been a big mm. factor into why we're wealthier than people in Germany. But we are moving away from that. Yeah. You know? and, and the median figure for Ireland, uh, according to Credit Suisse, is 56,500, let's say. Yeah. Let's just round it. Uh, but in the US, it's 43,600 in euro terms. Yeah. So, so, th- so you could say the typical person in Ireland then is, is, is wealthier than the typical person. In America. Which is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but we're only at roughly half the level of the UK in, in median terms. Yeah, that's true. So we're not as well off. So the UK seems to be doing extraordinarily well. And uh, Norway, uh, according well, to... Well, of course, Norway, with the, with thanks the oil. to the oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, and yeah. funnily enough... Well, mind you, the US is oil as well. It is shale now as well. It's one of the biggest producers. It's uh, Yeah, but it also has massive income disparity problems, doesn't it? Sure. Sure. I mean, you mentioned there the top 1% in the US. The top 1% holds a fifth of all income. Right. In Ireland, it's 9%. Income disparities in the UK, though, surely, too. Yeah, yeah. And yet their be. figure is extraordinary, €110,000. Yeah, according to Credit Suisse. As a, as a median, yeah. Okay, and I suppose it just uh, finally leaves uh, me to ask you, are you feeling rich, <laughs> uh, Fiona? 
Um, unfortunately, Kieran, a week to pay day. Were, were you ranked in the survey? Hard they, tax uh, to pay. Where, where Hard did you, to be where did you rank among the 4.4 million I'm not Irish feeling people? rich. All right, we'll leave there. Fiona Redden, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. And when we come back after the break, I'm going to be joined in studio by John Fitzgerald, economist and Irish Times uh, business columnist, and the Irish Times economics editor, Arthur Beasley, to discuss the problems and benefits that can arise when creating new government departments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life September 2014. Now, welcome back. Uh, in studio, I have John Fitzgerald, economist and Irish Times business columnist and Irish Times economics editor, Arthur Beasley. And they're here to talk to me about the issues that can arise when a new government takes office and effectively sets about reorganising government departments and state agencies. And John, this is something that you raised in your column on Tuesday when you said that uh, this can often bring more problems than benefits for the country as a whole. I think it's been over the last 40 years popular for politicians to say, Mm. oh, I'm going to show that this is a top priority, so I'm going to have a new department. But the problem is that creating a new department causes a lot of disruption for up to four years. And... It, it can be a recipe for actually nothing happening, whereas if you didn't change the departmental structure, um, maybe things might happen more rapidly. I'm yeah. not saying that that's always the case, sure. but it is a concern. And we saw with the HSE that the um, the HSE, they still haven't fully integrated and now they're talking about changing it again. And that did not work well for the people of Ireland. Yeah, and you worked in the Department of Finance uh, many years ago. I mean, did you see this at first yeah, yeah, the Department of Finance was split in 1977 into two and it didn't work well. Um, the Department of Economic Planning and Development um, pursued the government's line was there's going to be 7% growth forever. We in the Department of Finance knew that this was nonsense. And one particular bad example was the minister then, Des O'Malley, wanted to build a nuclear power station in Carnesore. They dropped that, fortunately, but went for Money Point coal-fired station and was built expecting 7% growth. And we in the Department of Finance said, no, the economy is heading for major problems um, internally, but that couldn't go any further. So you had one department which was uh, promoting the government's beliefs in their, themselves, and we were there saying, look, this isn't sensible. The ESB were told to run with the, the 7% growth, so they overspecified, and we ended up spe- paying too much for electricity for 15 years as a result. That's a case where two departments did not work well together, and they would have been better off leaving the Department of Finance intact. In the and 1977, that was the Jack Lynch uh, fall. Yeah. government that effectively promised the devil and all yeah. to the electorate and won a very big um, majority. Arthur Beasley, one of the, uh, probably the uh, most, uh, the biggest reorganisation uh, by government uh, that was ever announced was by Charlie McCreevy uh, in 2004 when he announced his decentralisation plan, much to the surprise of everybody on budget night, including uh, his government colleagues. Well, it was the biggest putative uh, reorganisation. This was uh, announced in the budget. It seemed that uh, everyone else in government was out of the loop, apart from Tom Parlin, who at the time was Minister of State and Finance, 
and had responsibility for the OPW and people may recall the famous Welcome to Parlin Country posters which were on the side of the main road into uh, County Offaly at that t- on that very evening but I mean look at I mean I think the and, uh, Just the, a reprise I mean, yeah, I mean actually the plan was to, to Half move. the government was to move out of government Yeah most state agencies yeah. that were in Dublin would move and some government departments as well uh, And it was all going to be done virtually you know in a, in, in a flash and uh, a committee of top officials was set up and uh, I mean there, there were press briefings it was all very ambitious but the results were very 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 modest it was hugely time consuming and really you know it, it provided at the time in hindsight we can look back now and this proved to be a huge distraction to the underlying tensions which were then emerging uh, in the economy. This was but a couple of years before the uh, the downturn which led to the crash and all that followed it. And uh, really, you know, it was, a, it was the political stroke of strokes. But, I mean, but to go back to what John was saying earlier, one of the key points in the in the present situation is that there's a very very relatively short amount of time in play for this government it's not no one expects the government mm. to last for 5 mm. years and what you're talking about are quite substantial reorganizations and these are you know complex bureaucratic tasks in their own right yeah John Fitzgerald, the decentralization plan that Charlie McCreevy devised mm. i mean there was no planning um had gone on in advance of his announcement mm. uh, effectively and, you know, when he gave evidence to the Oireachtas Banking Inquiry last year, he said that he'd no regrets uh, about the plan. Well, I, uh, uh, two things. One, we do need to evolve the administration. It does need to change. But you need to do it in a considered way, not because it's dreamt up to fit with the political manifesto. In terms of decentralisation, it's still haunting us. The government want to move environment from the Department of the Environment into the Department of Communications, Energy and Natural Resources. A lot of the people working in the environment are in Wexford because of decentralisation. Some of the Department of Communications are in Cavan and some are in Dublin and some are the Custom House. Now, putting this together, because people were moved to Wexford on the basis they wouldn't have to move back to Dublin. So, if you are moving functions from Wexford to Dublin, then you'll have to get completely new people who know nothing about the area. Um, and that does not seem a sensible way to do things. Now, it may be that some of the policy functions are still in Dublin, but it really makes uh, any reorganisation even more difficult than it would be. Yeah. And, and there are huge costs. For, for example, the department, I've had dealings with the uh, Irish aid part of the Department of Foreign Affairs, which is in Limerick. Limerick yeah. And like we had people coming over from Vietnam and they had to send up somebody to meet them at the airport on a Sunday morning. So somebody had to come up from from Limerick, spend the overnight in Dublin, meet them at the airport and then go back down where I act when I discovered this, I said, look, I do it for free um, um, and save them the hassle. But for a a department which is all about travel to locate part of it in Limerick just doesn't make sense. It's bonkers. I mean, there's an even better example. I think the OPW was decentralised to trim in County Mm. Mead from St. Stephen's Mm. Green, but they couldn't persuade everybody to go. So they were running buses. I don't know if this is still the case, but they certainly were running buses from Stephen's Green every day to trim uh, with people on board to, to work and trim and then I'm, we're bringing I'm, them back I'm, as well. I'm sure that's no longer happening. Yeah. Um, Arthur, Irish Water uh, perhaps is another example of, uh, of an entity, a state entity that was uh, formed out of the need to uh, impose water charges and to, you know, maybe bring some cohesion to the way that the, the water network was being managed around the country. 
previously everybody worked for local authorities. Now they came together to work for this one big utility. But it hasn't really worked, has it? Well, I mean, look at I mean, the, it seems to me that the argument to have a single utility in charge of the state's uh, very important water and infrastructure, that's a pretty compelling argument. Uh, it's very difficult to argue that that should be done by uh, dozens of local authorities, each with their own uh, management systems, each with their own, their, each with responsibility for their own part of what should be a national system. But uh, it's very, very clear that very, very serious mistakes were made, very serious political mistakes were made, which led to a situation where the credibility of the organisation itself uh, was in question from the very outset. And we had a mass boycott of the tax and we even have, uh, right up to this day, we have people who uh, might well be taking uh, senior jobs within an elected government, uh, elected by a parliament, who uh, have uh, thus far uh, been saying that they are not going to be paying the tax. John Fitzgerald, you mentioned how issues of the day uh, can often determine how departments are evolved and we see that I suppose in the housing situation where Simon Coveney is effectively the Minister for Housing now this is a new uh, a new ministry that's been formed to try and deal with this very urgent problem. Um, it, it is quite right that the government is prioritising housing um, and the problem is that they want to get rid of a lot of stuff out of that department to let them concentrate on housing but in doing that the stuff you're getting rid of uh, out of it is going to, and I'd be concerned about, for example, climate change. Um, then you put it into another department, Department of Communications, Energy and Natural Resources, which has a very heavy burden. Um, I just wonder whether in the future we could find a better way of doing this. Yes, the government wants to put a minister on like the last government it was children and that department did a good job Um, it may have served its purpose now but do you need to completely reorganise the administration to allow ministers to prioritise a particular area or can we find a way of doing this better in the future Indeed there was talk of uh, the the Ministry of uh, Rural Affairs that again is uh, has become something of a political hot potato when it was something that the government had to had to look at. Yeah, and, and your bits may come from all over the place. Um, and it really, uh, it, it's going to take a year, two years, possibly three years to get this, because you're going to have to hire people, mm. you're going to have to people persuade people to move, um, people won't know whom they're dealing with. Um, this is something that is going to, an awful lot of the time of civil servants is going to, go into reorganising themselves rather than on prioritising the environment or housing. And ironically, we have an administration that's a minority government and they might not last two years. It's a possibility. So we could have yet yet more change in a couple of years before these departments have even had a chance to break down. Arthur, I suppose, would it be right to say that one of the successes has been the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, which was essentially carved out of the Department of Finance in 2011 to deal with the with the, the crisis that was uh, unfolding at that time? I think there's no doubt that there were, there were questions around that structure at the very outset, because after all, uh, ours is a very, very small state. It is a relatively small public administration. We're only four and a half million people. Uh, and I think there was some scepticism. Hold on a minute. Do we really need to have effectively two uh, departments of finance? But I think in the, in, the, in the final analysis, I think the dual structure was proved to have been uh, pretty effective. Uh, 
there was a rather uh, challenging task within the Department of Finance itself, which was faced with the you know, the question of rebuilding the tax tax collection and the tax base, which was also que- faced with the question of managing our way out of a very, very deep and profound banking crisis. But at the other side, on the expenditure side, there was also a very, very tricky political task in as much as this was a government, albeit with a very strong mandate, which had to impose very swinging cuts on expenditure across the board. And that entailed, uh, in the middle of it all, cuts to public pay and pensions, which is politically very, very difficult. So I think in the Hilda Hunt, I think it was proved to uh, work, to have worked pretty well. And that is seen you like, in the recovery in the public finances. Now, the outgo, the last government didn't get a whole pile of gratitude for that. Both of the parties lost seats, but it is irrefutable that the public finances right now are in a lot better shape than they were. Sure. Underlying all of this, uh, John Fitzgerald, though, it's, it strikes me that a lot of people, especially uh, people who've served as ministers, believe that we are pretty well served by the civil service, in spite of all of the sort of moving of chairs that goes on from time to time and, and the uh, you know the problems that that can create, and it was a point that Shane Ross made in his column uh, in the Sunday Independent last week. And he, of course, has been very critical of uh, the civil service in the past. In 2012, I had dinner with one of the a number of the top officials from the Troika in Dublin, and with two other Irish people. And we spent the evening moaning about all the things that could be done better in Ireland. And at the end of the evening, the senior person from the Troika of the three people there said, look, you have one of the best administrations you've come across in the world. And it was interesting. Now, of course, IMF and the EU only deal with problem administration, Mm. so that's not necessary. But I think that we are very well served. Um, We highlight, and it's quite right that we highlight the things we get wrong. We never get excited about the things we do well. And there, there, there are places like the Irish Army, which does a great job. We don't really say thank you or appreciate what they do. The Statistical Office, CSO, Department of Finance is now doing a really good. Like, uh, the Irish administration is working well. And it was the people in the Department of Finance who arguably helped us get out of the crisis as well, because we had that four-year plan that was devised uh, uh, before Detroit yeah. actually came to town. I think that mistakes were made in that department clearly clearly, in the run-up to the crisis Um, um, but I think they've learned their lesson and I think they're doing a better job And they responded well Arthur? I I, I think in the the year that's in it uh, a century after 1916 if you like I mean it seems to me that the crash and all that led to it uh, betokened a a titanic failure of state but ultimately the recovery from crash points to a resilience of the state as well and uh, Ireland managed to turn the corner Uh, much more quickly and much more smoothly than some of the other crisis-struck countries. And that, to my mind, in a scenario where you had uh, a massive election defeat for the dominant party in Fianna Fáil, the arrival of a new government, and uh, and we know what happened that government in the recent election, it still shows us that the state had capacity to take its medicine, to administer itself, uh, to to self-medicate and also to accept external aid and do what was required. Also, the administration is impartial. Like in the United States, all top civil servants are fired when you get a new administration. Similarly in Germany, in a lot of the world, and it is the serv- civil, civil servants, uh, public servants will serve whoever is minister loyally um, and do a good job. And I think that that gives you continuity. And I know it's pilloried in yes minister and yes prime minister, and it does mm. have its problems that... It, it needs shaking up, um, but I think it does give you a continuity yeah. which we've 
benefited from. Is that a, a legacy of our uh, of the British administration? I know we're ninety four years independent, but is a lot of what we have in the civil service, the structures and so forth, is it a legacy of uh, British rule? I think it is even more so a legacy of the first government and the Sinn Féin, uh, like the original Sinn Féin government in 1919-21. They were very keen on it being impartial. And then that was firmed up really when the 1932, when de Valera took over and a few senior people were changed, but basically de Valera and the administration just moved on as if nothing had happened and forgot the civil war. Right. So I think that I think that it's the foundations of the state and the way it worked in the first decade or 12 years was important. Right. Okay. Has there ever been any an exercise done to quantify how much it costs to you know remake departments to change them around to rearrange no, them? Not that I'm aware of. Right. Okay. And is there any country in the world that you would aspire to Ireland copying in terms of how we run our administration? Well, there are good features in many places. Um, the French administration, um, the École Nationale d'Administration, um, that their top civil servants are highly trained, but it's a bit too narrow a group. That 12 people graduate as Inspector de Finance each year since 1947, and they run France. Now, we actually have a diverse range of public servants. It's probably much more diverse than in Britain, where they'll be all uh, Cambridge or Oxford. We actually have a more varied... And I think you don't want everybody to be the same. You want variety. And mm, I especially actually, in a small country. Yeah. yeah okay. All right. Um, we're now going to move on to the European Commission's latest recommendations in relation to the Irish economy. This has just come out today, Arthur, just uh, an hour or two ago. Take us through the main points. Well, I mean, I suppose the, fir- the first point is that Ireland is out of what is known as uh, the excessive deficit procedure. It's a very fancy word for the, uh, the uh, what's happening is that that procedure has been abrogated. In other words, we are uh, no longer under a very heavy form of scrutiny from the authorities in Brussels and we're now moving into a new phase. Now, there are new rules, new requirements, new obligations, but in a scenario where the first, so one of the first signs of grave, grave crisis was a, a deficit which uh, spiralled. Uh, the deficit is now under control. That's what this means. Now, uh, what do we have today? We essentially have policy recommendations from the European Commission. These policy recommendations are to go to European finance ministers. The presumption must be that they will sign off on those recommendations, and there are three of those. The first is that the uh, correction of the structural deficit should be speeded up a little bit. The second is that more should be done to uh, implement what are known as activation policies. In other words, encouraging people who are unemployed to uh, get out there, get them back into the workforce. And the third is uh, a residual problem, a great legacy of the the crash, and that is that uh, a a plea is being made here for uh, the banks to speed up the problem with uh, legacy debts on them at the at the level of mortgages. Yeah, uh, John Fitzgerald, anything in there to concern you or? No, um, I think that they've picked out uh, a couple of things which they have been mm. um, keen on. Um, and unfinished business, in particular in the legal, uh, in the legal services area, where I think Alan Shatter was doing a very good job as minister. It's a bit unfortunate that he didn't manage to to complete in that See area. Through, yeah. um, on activation, um, that's something they have been concerned uh, about and made good points. The Troika actually were helpful um, um, in a number of these areas. They didn't say you've got to do it because we still haven't, but they did provide good advice and kept on re- providing the advice mm. and reminding. Give us an example. 
Well, uh, uh, one area which the Troika, I thought, and uh, it's given their credit, every time they met the ESRI, and they were, every quarter we would have met them, the, one of the issues they brought up was the distributional effects. Who's going to be hurt by the measures? And people don't think of the Troika and the IMF as worrying about this. They worried about it. Now, they did have an ulterior motive in their worry. Um, they, they worried because it was important that it should be as fair as possible. Now, it could have been fairer, but it could have been an awful lot worse. The other reason they were concerned was about an Irish water debacle, that if the government introduces measures which are important in terms of balancing the books and then they fail, the government is left with a large hole and the IMF and the the EU Commission would be left with a major problem. So it wasn't just that they were interested in in, in uh, those in poverty in Ireland, but I think that that was useful. They kept raising that issue, which meant that instead of going for the quick fix, which might have hurt the poor, the government were encouraged, uh, successive governments were encouraged to think in terms of the distributional effects. Yeah, let's talk about that legal services uh, bill, Arthur. Um, There are some critical comments uh, in this uh, report from the European Commission. And they said that the concessions that were made to the legal professions that significantly reduced the initial ambition of the reform, and it's too early to be fully confident that it will boost competition and reduce costs. Now, this is something that you've written about extensively, and it's caused quite a stir in the uh, legal profession. Well, yes. Well, I mean, look, they say it's too early to be fully confident. That seems to me to be uh, a bureaucratic language for saying we are not confident. We are not confident at all. And I think uh, I think there's be a, in legal circles, there'll be a high degree of comfort that uh, the reform uh, set out in the legislation now enacted uh, is not really going to do a whole pile about the, the very high level of legal costs in this country. And, you know, we have had in uh, recent, in the last couple of weeks, we have we've had an intervention from Isolde Goggin, who is a chair of the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. And uh, she pointed out that the very heavy lobbying of government, which went right to the Taoiseach and uh, right to uh, Alan Shatter and indeed to his successor, uh, Francis Fitzgerald, that uh, she essentially said that her organisation was in the halfpenny place. And that is the organisation which is statutorily bound to uphold the rights of consumers, the interests of consumers and the interests of open competition in the markets. And it seems to me that at the heel of the hunt, uh, where the Commission is talking about these very late concessions, uh, key powers were preserved for the Bar Council, which acts for, which is the barrister's organisation, and key powers were preserved for the Law Society. Uh, yes, there will be, for the first time after centuries of self-regulation, independent regulation of barristers and solicitors, but what we ended up with was something which was rather less than was envisaged when Alan Shatter introduced the original bill way back in October of 2011. Yeah, John Fitzgerald, they talk about uh, taking, uh, seeking uh, durable restructuring solutions to lower non-performing loans. And I think the central bank has put a figure on those NPLs. It's something like in, in value terms, uh, just under one fifth of all outstanding loans held by the Irish banks are, are deemed to be non-performing. So it's, it's, it's still a very big problem, isn't it? It's a very slow resolution. And one of the problems, one of the reasons why we have high mortgage interest rates is because of the risk involved in lending a mortgage in Ireland. If it was easier to repossess, in particular the buy-to-let mortgages, um, then 
the cost of capital would be lower for banks. But out of the margin, which people who actually pay their mortgage every day and they're paying, uh, in some cases, a pretty high um, uh, mortgage interest relative to what the banks are paying, the banks have got to cover the cost of the fact that they aren't able to repossess the houses. So uh, this is an issue. They're also having to pay for those loss-making tracker loans and so forth. Oh, they are, yeah. So this is an issue where resolving this quicker rather than slower um, would help. Have you any sense that that's going to happen? Well, there has been significant progress. And if you look every quarter, it's just that it's going to take a long time. Um, Maybe if it was done a bit more rapidly, it would help. But then the cost of doing it very rapidly is that you may end up repossessing an awful lot of people's houses. So mm-hmm. there is there is a tension there. And essentially, this is the responsibility of the government. The Department of Finance owns all of AIB, owns most of TSB and owns 15% of Bank of Ireland. Normally, the shareholder is the person who would be concerned about this issue. Yeah. And what's your view on the debate about SVRs that's going on at the moment? Uh, Fianna Fáil looking to introduce a bill into law that would effectively give powers to the central bank to regulate interest rates? I think... The long-term solution to this is competition in the banking sector. But all over Europe, um, there is a problem that the banks all over Europe have, uh, and none of them are eager. Major to, problem in Italy. Uh, yeah, and, and, and in Germany. Like, this is not, uh, we've had to deal with our problems. But the problem is that we don't have people anxious to come in and lend money in Ireland because of all the problems. If we had, as we did in the past, that is what would give you a competitive mortgage market. So I think you need to look at how you bring competition into the market. Arthur, we have a minority government with a lot of issues on its plate, including housing and so forth. How much weight are they going to place on these recommendations? Um, look, at, I mean, I, I think the, the recommendations are, a, I mean, they're not, in the circumstances, they're not particularly heavy. I think there's enough in the recommendations to give Brussels, the capacity to say, look at, you know, we're issuing these very, very severe recommendations on the Irish authorities. There's, there's enough in there for the Irish authorities to be able to say, yes, we are uh, we're upholding our side of the bargain. I think the real key thing, when you look at the programme for government, those 160 pages, the key thing is the political pledge to uphold the fiscal rules. That is the only thing which is going to keep matters on the entire administration when it comes to all of those promises in the document over 160 pages, uncosted most of them. They have to be seen through the prism of the commitment to uphold the rules. I think for as long as the government upholds the rules vis-a-vis the deficit and vis-a-vis the debt level, well then I don't think anyone in Brussels is going to be having too much of a headache with what goes on yeah. in Dublin. Uh, my concern is not about the next budget, but if the government survives the following budget, if the economy continues growing the way it is, it's not that Brussels will be telling us that we've got to spend less or tax more. We ourselves will need to. We saw what happened when things got out of control in the last decade. It could be that 2018, the government will need to raise taxes, not because they need the money, but because they need to slow the economy. That's not yet the position, but I could see it happening. And that is going to be a big problem. That's going to be deeply unpopular. I mean, uh, political suicide, perhaps, by Fine Gael. Yeah, well, you could have said the same about the government, two governments, in particular the 2002-2007 government. That's what they should have done. They didn't, and we have had a decade of misery. I think that hopefully people will remember that 
that is what happens if you let things go out. And when things are going well, you may actually have to take money out of the economy. I, I, I think you've raised a very good point there. If you look at if you look at the election or you look at the, the Fugail motto, you know, keep the recovery going, right? Uh, clearly that failed. But my sense of it is, was that that was the, the outwork of focus group research in which Finnegale was being told, listen, you know, it's been really, really difficult. Do not screw it up. And you can't say as a political motto, we're not going to screw it up. And I think what happened was that the, the pledge not to make a mess of it again was turned into something which uh, was quite distant from the, the reality as a, reality is encountered by most people. But I do think that is, ve- that is very much there in the undercurrent. I think if you ask anyone on the street uh, what their fundamental sentiment was yeah. around where we are and where we are going, I'd say they would be uh, yet, very, very strong, very, very forceful. And yet, John Fitzgerald, there's a there's a, there's a pledge, if you like, to um, modify the USE as we know it now, not to cut it, not to abolish it completely, as Fine Gael had talked about in the election, but certainly to 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 modify it. It could be that in 2018 we will need to add one percentage point onto USC. I don't know, um, or maybe we should raise property tax. I don't know, but it could well be, and it's more likely to be tax increases needed. I'm not saying this that. that that I, it may not be needed, but it is having a government that is willing to protect the people of Ireland from a similar disaster that we've seen in the past by raising taxation. That's going to be difficult. And what about water charges? What, what, do, you, what do you think of what they've done on the water charges issue? Do you think water charges are gone forever? I think they are gone for this doyle. I just can't see. Uh, I think the, 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 there were two things. One there was the utility. And actually, I think Irish Water have done a good job. And I think they have been failed by the political system. And I think they were very badly served by the political system in the way they were set up in their initial commentary. Preserving a single utility was the first priority. Paying for it um, by water charges is very important. And the cost of us not having water charges is we are not going to have it's enough money to invest in social housing because it's not just the money that we've got to find to pay for the water it is because if water was independent they could all of their investment would be off the government's books and that money would be freed up for social housing so I don't think people realise the extent to which it's not the money on the water charges it's the independence of Irish water um, as a utility, would allow the government to refocus its resources on social housing. They're not going to be able to do so as well. Instead, Arthur has become a, a political football. Uh, an, an absolute political football. And, uh, I mean, really, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's quite astonishing that we find ourselves at this point. Uh, it seems extraordinary after the, uh, the election that we've just had that uh, the suspension of water charges became the price of Fianna Fáil support for a minority administration in a scenario where it was Fianna Fáil which signed up to the Troika deal in the first instance and in which the water charges were first provided for. And, I mean, really, this was a problem which had lingered for many, many decades. I can recall starting out uh, in journalism, one of the very, very first stories I did was a story Not about... Not uh, Yeah, yeah, no, indeed. was was one of the very first stories about the, you know, the discovery of uh, lead in a school water system somewhere. And, I mean, that's going back many, many, many years. And uh, this is... A, a, I mean, we need to fix our water system. A, a, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of water in this country. Hell knows. I mean, it, it rains quite a lot. But, uh, I mean, the system does need to be fixed. 
uh, in the week before the election, I received my water bill and I was determined I was going to pay it and went out and paid by visa. I'd forgotten I had a standing order. So I actually paid Double it twice <laughs> uh, coming up to the election. But to give Irish water their due, they have repaid me. So they did a great job on the repayment of those who overpaid. Right, the Irish water saving scheme for people who <laughs> paid their charges. I don't know. I hope they're going to get the money back. Mm. Right, very good. That's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Fiona Redden, John Fitzgerald and Arthur Beasley for the contributions. John Casey produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.